Hello and welcome to episode 120 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alecci, and today my special guest is David Copeland, Professor Emeritus in Social Anthropology at Witts University in Johannesburg. He is an ethnomusicologist, an anthropologist, and a fierce African studies interdisciplinarian. He is the author of In Township Tonight, South Africa's Black City Music and Theater, which first was published in 1985 and then a thoroughly revised and updated edition came out in 2007 with University of Chicago Press. And in the time of cannibals, the word music of South Africa's Basutu migrants, also Chicago Press, 1994. Most recently, Copeland published Last Night at the Baseline, a tribute with Jacana, 2017, which is richly illustrated with photos by Oscar Gutierrez. Copeland also appears frequently on South African television and radio, where he brings his unparalleled expertise to discussions about arts and popular culture. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. It's great to see you after all this time. So how did you, an American, develop an interest in African studies, and Southern Africa in particular, and how did you end up in Soweto in that oh-so-ominous and historic year of 1976? Well, there are two things um, that are kind of key to it. First of all, don't care about uh, race and ethnicity and background with people, whatever happens, because it just makes no sense. You will miss out. If you think that that's important in people, you will miss out on the tremendous range of creativity and culture and just enjoyment in life. So in my case, it was very funny, but I was playing in a band in varsity, you know, have money for the weekends and so on. And I was into percussion because it was the beginning of the sort of world music uh, thing, although we didn't call it world music at the mm. time. We know what it was. But you know, there was an Ola Tunji, and there was a great Nigerian drummer. Yes, and, and, and bebop, Dizzy Gillespie, and then brought in Chano Pozo. I mean, there was this Latin thing. Was kind of, so I kind of took care of that for the band, and uh, so I began uh, to be interested in collecting West African and Caribbean Latin music because I liked the stuff. For one thing, in my life I've never planned anything, and I, I don't really recommend that as as a strategy, but... You know, some of us just can't play chess two moves ahead. We just, you know, the next thing. So I was playing in the band, and then I had some friends, uh, West African uh, students uh, at the college who were there, and they said, oh, we know you. Everybody goes to France backpacking after college. Don't do that. Come down to Ghana. We'll have a great time. We'll show you, you know, something else, you know, really give me a thought. So I said, well, okay. So I went down to... Um, gone on sort of a gap year thing, as the British like to say, take a year off after undergrad before you sign up for more school, and went uh, to Ghana, and I signed up. Uh, when I got there, uh, I wanted to stay, and then I saw my friend, and I wanted to stay, and very reasonable fees to sign up for an MA at the African Studies Institute. So I signed up more just to stick around. It was a wonderful time in uh, Ghana in 1970. And I studied with the National Dance Ensemble and played drums and learned how to dance. And just, I had two years, I, I got an MA in 
African studies with music, ethnomusicology specialization and wrote a thesis. And at the time I was just living, I mean, it was a wonderful place and we had such an international group of graduate students and wonderful teachers who had come from universities all over Africa and Europe and it was fantastic. So uh, then I said, well, gee, I guess I better do something with this. <laughs> so I, uh, I wrote to Alan Merriam at um, Indiana about maybe being a grad student there in ethnomusicology within anthropology because in those days music departments didn't really do African music specifically as a specialty. You might find Chinese or Korean or Indian or Indonesian gamelan, but uh, you know somebody in a music department specializing on the African, real African music, and not to mention the pop that I was playing. Uh, it was many programs, but uh, in Indiana that was based in anthropology, but they were quite interested because of Alan and the ethnomusicology side of it. So on the strength of my uh, MA, I was admitted there and began to teach, and I did my graduate work there. And I was still into the West African thing until a filmmaker, Guy Zantzinger of Penn University, who made ethnomusicology films all over Southern Africa, came to a paper of mine that I gave at a conference, and he said, you know, I need somebody to go down and do the prelim, do the preliminary research for this film I'd like to do on township music. And, you know, I was the type of guy, I didn't say, oh my God, apartheid, and how can we go there, and it's not politically this and this. Because this was the time of the yeah. sports boycott and increasingly the cultural boycott. Yes, but, you know, I was so naive. It didn't occur to me, like, you shouldn't go there because of all this. Mm. I said, oh, wow, that must be some, some kind of a place, you know. Let's see what's going to go on. So I went there, and I had two uh, tours, and... Second one began on the 16th of June, 1976, which was the first day of the student uprising. And uh, in Soweto. Yes, in Soweto. And I was in town in a cheap hotel, and the armored personnel carriers were rolling from the army base down towards the people in Soweto. And there was uh, lurid pictures in the press about little kids in, in school uniforms facing off against bayonets and all this. So one of my musical friends, Alan Aquela, uh, uh, who I knew before, came to my hotel and I said, Alan, I'm leaving, I'm going, I can't do this, you know, this is terrible. He said, don't be a fool, Dave, for heaven's sake, we have been lying on our backs getting kicked for years, right? And for the first time in decades in Sharpville, we are now interesting. You are here, all of your skills, all of your friends and your sympathy with the place, and your ability, your street smarts, and you want to go home? Are you kidding, man? I'm in an academic. Most of what you guys study ain't worth reading, but you are going to have a scoop. This is going to be the South African scoop of the decade. You know, ethnomusicologists trucks it out in Soweto during the, you know, with tear gas canister in hand, man. This is you know, I'll show you around, man. Come on, let's get a car and let's, you know, let's get down there while it's still burning, you know, he said. And I said, Alan, you know, you make a lot of sense sometimes. <laughs> so we biled ourselves into an old car and down we went in the smoke and flame and the rest is history. That's a perfect bridge <laughs> to your first book in Township Tonight, South Africa's Black City Music and Theater which was an inspiration to me when I was a graduate student, uh, looking into 
not just the social history of South Africa, but particularly, you know, black football. And there were no academic books. Unfortunately, there still is only mm. one on that topic. Mm. But I think your work is uh, remarkable because you started reconstructing this hidden history, this social history, going back 100 years almost, and even before, in fact, uh, that um, really had not been part of what uh, the mainstream thought of as you know, South Africa's cultural heritage, going back to the jazz maniacs, the Manhattan Brothers, and then, of course, the jazz epistles, and uh, Abdullah Ibrahim, Yuma Zagela, Kipi Moketsi, who you met in yes. that 1976 visit to Soweto. Mm. And then, of course, Gibson Kente and his township theater, um, the new edition of the new word, the second edition of In Township Tonight also has a wonderful section on, you know, Kwaito and yeah. uh, groups like Squata Camp and so on. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, you've covered so much and you, when you look back at this, at this work, you know, what do you think is its, its most important legacy for the way that scholars look at South African popular culture and maybe popular culture in African studies more broadly? Well, I was feeling my way because a lot of what passed for uh, African ethnomusicology, it was great. It was about the more rural and older village, I don't know how to put it, forms of you know, the traditional Africa, that was the big thing. The idea of urban pop as a valid creative enterprise as, as part of the world flows, global flows, of culture. I mean, think of Latin music and all where it's been and the whole journey of jazz. And South Africa, you know, the, the Black Atlantic and all this and where was it? And people didn't think, seem to think that, you know, for Africa that that, that part of it uh, was such an important scholarly subject. No, we should look at, you know, dancing and drumming or whatever we should do. And I thought, but if you come from America, the jazz history, the family tree, you know, Louis Armstrong, right on up through the new Coltrane, and then we have Joshua Redman. I said, South Africa has its own rich musical history of this kind, and no one has said a word about it. It's part of the apartheid smothering of, you know, we had Duke Ellington, they had Kipi Mwaketsi. I thought it was a terrible lacuna, a terrible empty. And I also thought to myself two other things. One is that cities, cities are, their character to me is defined by their creative artists ultimately in the various fields of creation. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, once finance and law and infrastructure and the bridge and big architecture and local government is established, the people who make a city what it is are now the writers and painters and uh, musicians and, and architects and people. That, and so, look, what is, what is New York without its various scenes, or Paris or Tokyo or Hong Kong? You know, you wouldn't even necessarily want to go to New York if there wasn't bright lights, okay? And, you know, a, a Jewish artistic management and black talent made Broadway. This is a story. Okay, and New York without what was Broadway, what is it? Okay, it's a big, hard city. So I realized, you know, Johannesburg and Cape Town both had some of this. So it's the idea that it's the artists that make a city what it is, but in this case, so much against the odds. 
I mean, I really had a story here because they were told not to do it. They were persecuted and they were banned and they were, you couldn't have your pass signed to say I'm a musician because a black person's pass had to have their employment on it. Well, musician or any of the other actor was not a category at all. It had to be servant or T-boy, truck driver, whatever. And the attempts to stifle the jazz life, let's say, in particular, because jazz, as Monk said, this is the music of freedom. Um, people can play it all over the world, anywhere they want to play it. And it doesn't have to have words to mean freedom. You know, when you hear Coltrane, you think of black aspiration and freedom and so forth. And it doesn't have to be a ballad. And they had done this in South Africa, this tremendous story of against the grain and against the odds, and paid a huge price, and they had done it. The Harlem Renaissance, you had the Sophiaton Renaissance, and I said, somebody's got to do something about this. And now what are you going to do? Well, I thought the performing arts emerge out of a context of social uh, conflict and, you know, the life of the people and what they had gone through. And blues and jazz, I mean, this is the story of how people lived in New Orleans and Chicago and New York. Well, little Joe Berg, you know, this I felt and took a lot of flack for this, that this real story of Johannesburg was black Johannesburg. And the real story of black Johannesburg was these guys, these and women, the the singers and the players and the dancers and the dance bands <laughs> and the fashionistas and the soccer players and the boxers and the gangsters, bang, bang, and the liquor runners and the painters and the novelists, mm. and you know, all, you know, who, because I'm from New York, right? I said, there's a New York here, and I said, well, I don't know how to do it, but I'm just going to talk to everybody that I can corral, and then I'm going to tell this story. And Miriam Makeba and Hugh Mazaghella were two of the most fierce, not just cultural ambassadors of South Africa, but activists in the global anti-apartheid struggle. And they were very much at the heart of the scene that you described so well. In, in their time in South Africa, I, I made a decision to emphasize those who did not leave and who made, you know, the Kippy Mukhetsis only because I felt that Miriam and Hugh and Jonas Kwangwa and like, had had quite a bit of attention and were the best known of the South Africans and played all over the world and had a voice. Miriam Makeba spoke to the United Nations. Where was the voice of the people who were still in Soweto and Sophia Town? Th those generations. So I, I took it upon myself. I could have been in New York and done a biography of Hugh or something, but it seemed to me that there was nothing on those who had built the world that they had come out of and to get the world to understand what was going on in South Africa. And, and you're still doing this because your, <laughs> your last book, a tribute to that great jazz club, yeah. The Baseline, which when I went to it, originally it was in Melville, and it was just... It was in Melville. The book's about the one in Melville. Yeah, fantastic. You, you and then I went it, there, didn't we? Yes, and it, it migrated uh, a couple of times, I think. I o lost over track to of Newtown, it. but the book is about the nine years it was in Melville as a jazz... What was it? Playpen. 
tell me a little bit about this because First of all, the kind of book that you produced is really interesting, and the photographs by uh, Oscar Gutierrez are, are marvelous. But why did you feel moved to document the short, relatively short, but really impactful history of the baseline? A history of a club is actually a very cool mm. concept. It's history of a club. Because it was a moment like no other. 1994, it started, it was coterminous with the new era. And my feeling that the jazz is the music of freedom is a real, is a genuine thing to say. It's not just a phrase. Okay? And the musicians who had been so kind of held down and there's no venues and all the problems, which were still there, but now the raps were off. You could go anywhere with anybody and play anything. Even, even all right, maybe you weren't making a fortune, but nobody told you you couldn't play there and there's no transport and, you know, we're watching you. And it was, that was all gone. And the guys just came out of the woodwork mm. and lo and behold, there was an audience. And that audience at first consisted of liberal white suburbanites by the way, of whom there were a great number who hated the old government and hated the restrictions and hated being pariahs and hated being, you know, you're the ones that are doing this, you know, who saw no reason whatsoever to keep black people down. Why would you even bother? And the ruination of our culture and the city and everything that it caused, and it, it imprisoned white people as black people. I'm not you know, letting white people off the hook in any way, but there was quite a number who said, not this, no, you know, enough. Especially in the very bohemian yes. quarters of Melville. Yeah, there was that group, you know, and, and, and the guys came to play and we went to listen. And it was a way of saying that South Africa is dead and it's going to be replaced by a saxophone solo, okay? Don't forget Bill Clinton, the first president in history ever to be seen in the same room with a saxophone, never mind playing one. We went there, but I mean, Tabo and Becky came to the, uh, the baseline, and Trevor Manuel, and Saki Matlazoma, the business magnate, and uh, Vavi, the union guy, Zwanzi Mavavi, mm. and on and on. We could see them say, hey, hey, Trevor, how you doing? Blah, blah. Because, of course, they're all great jazz lovers who, you know, through the years. So it was a time and a place. It was 94. You could go and play. People wanted to put their hands and their hearts across the table and say, we are a people. Well, maybe the euphoria didn't last, but it was just a moment that can never be repeated. And secondly, the music that was played there, once the raps were off, was astounding. Brad Holmes, the owner, had a rule, play your own music. I don't want to hear a beautiful rendition of my favorite things at my club. And, and I it also, wasn't just South African musicians. These were musicians from all, all over what, the continent, play, all over the world. Right. All over the place. And we had black and we had that. And he said, and I'm not going to have Don't Worry, Be Happy either, you know, with all respect. Play what you play, no matter how. And musicians began to play outside stuff for which there wasn't an audience, but there soon was one. 
And then the black suburbanites, new class, getting the new jobs that were opening up very quickly for uh, black people. And maybe they weren't rich yet, but they could afford, I mean, the, it was 10 bucks to go to the baseline, whatever, people come. So now, people of some education and some cosmopolitanism, both black and white, in between, international, up and down, were meeting at this place and drinking together, which is before, and listening to this music. And if you weren't hip enough, you never said anything. Nobody there at the bar said, gosh, this music's beyond me. No, everybody said, oh, wow, you know, because you wanted to, like South Africa had to be, you know. Nobody said, oh, well, we're just South African. We don't understand free jazz. It's, no, I <laughs> nothing like that. Everybody wanted to know what the world, what they thought the world was playing, and we invited the world to play it. And then including the African guys, the Oliver Mtukudzi and the Bundu boys and the uh, Thomas Mapfumos and endlessly, and the old classic jazz singers from the 50s and Dati Masuku and all the people came, mm -hmm. and Abdullah Ibrahim came. We thought God had landed. I mean, they went nuts at the club just trying to make it a place that he would deign to even walk into. They mm. hired a chef for the night, you know, to, because their food was awful, right? They said, oh, we can't have that, and, you know, and so they, they, brought, they brought up a, somebody's mother who was a chef from Cape Town came and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it was just what we thought. The 150 people packed into that place thought that this was the acorn that South Africa would be. And unfortunately, things haven't quite worked out uh, as our hopes were, but that's what we wanted for the country. We wanted a South Africa that was the baseline jazz club in big. Right? And I think it was a worthy enterprise, and of course, after nine years, it finally just, I mean, the economics of it were crazy. But I met so many people, that was my hangout. I came up to Joburg to teach at Witz, and I was, I, I went to live in Melville because it seemed more New York-y, kind of neighborhoody, and people walked up and down and said hello to their neighbor, it was, you know, like, so... I walked in the place one night, and, I, and, and uh, there was 10 Rand walking in. And they said, well, sir, you should stick around. There'll be some music later. And I said, oh, yeah, sure, great. And I stuck around and had a drink. I never left. That was it. I was home. I, you know, I, I was looking for a place to kind of be in the city I had moved back to, but now I didn't really know people. And by that night, I knew where I was supposed to be. So it was just a time, and... Oscar, many years later, he was doing his own thing. He was a Melvillian and a rock, Rocky Streeter from Yeovil, and he was all these things, and he was Guatemalan, and he was crazy, and he was take pictures. And I knew him as a, as a hanger-out, as a, as a guy. You know, we hang out there. Years later, we had the Orbit Jazz Club, which is still there now. And it's, I don't know if we've been there, but it's our best club. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's, it's quite classy to a point. So they put up portraits of uh, jazz musicians from before and from now, which were all taken by Oscar because he's a fabulous jazz photographer. And every week I would go there and I would see these 
images where you could see the music just flowing out of the person's mind and down into their fingers and into the horn. And I met Brad Holmes at the bowling club one night. We were both, shall we say, three sheets to the wind. Whatever you say here, <laughs> the state's a little bit on the far side. And Brad says, I need a writer. I need a writer. This thing, I've got all my diaries and my notes and my contracts and my scribbles and my the people. The baseline is in my life. That's what made me who I am, and I'll never forget that. And I said, oh, but you remember, Brad, I was at the baseline almost every week, at least more and more so. And so he says, yeah, you were there. I said, well, you found your writer. Stop looking. He said, what do you mean? I said, you found your writer. That's, you had a question, question answered. I will do this. So when we sobered up, we had a meeting. <laughs> and as we were going through it and looking about raising money in this net, and I said, but I got to have Oscar. I got to have Oscar because he's the best and I gotta have him. And I'm not getting any younger, and I don't know how many books and this and that, but the baseline is precious to me. It's, it's me, it's us, it's the way we were. It, you know, it'll never be, can I go? So we had to raise quite a lot of money to, <laughs> to pay for Oscar, but it was all worth it because the production values in the book are quite high, it's good paper. And that means that the images can be printed properly. We worked uh, for months. Uh, doing so, it was my first chance to take art photography, performance photography, much more seriously than merely documentary, because not every ethnomusicologist or music writer goes and takes a picture. You use your cell phone, and it documents what happened, right? And then there are, of course, great music photographers, but the books in which their works feature usually have a caption. Uh, Dizzy Gillespie, Los Angeles, The Lighthouse, 1962. And that's it. And there, there's Dizzy uh, blowing away. But I said, word and image, word and image. You can, if you can have an image of it, you can have a story. So I said, I'll write the story to the photographs. And you won't take the photographs to the story because they were all taken 15 years ago and there's nothing you can do about it, but I am writing now. So I took it, the idea of writing not to documentary photographs, but to art photographs, to portraits uh, in music, and to write for that. So it stopped being really an academic kind of mm -hmm. book with an analysis and a history and a lot of facts. Because I now had no reason really to do that at Vitz. There was no pressure on me to do anything. And younger people, I hope, were coming up. I wanted the baseline to live and breathe again. And I wanted those who had been there to remember and those who had not been there to understand uh, and to upgrade the level of my prose to the level of those photographs. And that's what we did. So moving from the emotional, um, popular study of the baseline to the academic talk that you gave yesterday here at Michigan State, migration and borders are a hot topic for good or mostly ill. <laughs> 
not just in the United States, but in the European Union, in South Africa. You said something in the talk that was really, really interesting about how the arbitrariness of African borders doesn't mean that they're not embedded in reality and continue to play an outsized role in many respects in African affairs. You talked about how borders are business. And you have this nice word, borderlanders. And you described this popurri of border actors from you know the customs agents to the, the migrants themselves and other agents. So tell us a little bit about how these borders work and what you term the, the, their semi-efficiency, this kind of zone in which all sorts of transactions and uh, movements and uh, ways of doing and thinking are practiced. Because it's, it's, it's a world that I think you look at in a very interesting way from, from, a, from a southern African perspective, not from a sort of global north perspective, and not from exclusively a political perspective. Yes, Peter. Well, my, my problem began with a lot of the literature uh, on uh, border studies that was European-oriented, where there is, uh, sh should I call it a fetishization, it, it, there was an idea of there are states and nations and countries and there are men running around in uniforms and there are forms to fill and you can't just, and Austria is not Hungary. And this concept of the state and its sovereignty as being on display at the border, maybe more than anywhere else. They're performative, you know, performance. You know, where's the link between this guy and his jazz club and the border? There are two links. One is that the Basutu, whose workers' culture, folk literature of the, of the mines I was studying, were crossing the border all the time. Uh, so I was constantly somehow around there. And the other thing about the performative nature, the carnivalistic nature of, of African borders, some African, some European borders, now there's Schengen and all this kind of thing, but these would be pretty somnolent business, the crossing a northern hemisphere border with all these droll people looking at you askance and so on. And African borders weren't like that at all. It was this big playground. And there are many places which were designated as borders in Africa that had not been borders before. Uh, but the people aren't so unhappy about that because where there was nothing, no town, no business, no activity, no real get up and go, you put a border there and it's carnival time. You know, it's trucks and it's people and it's uh, the vice squad and gambling and smuggling and night festivals and jugglers. It's a Shakespearean <laughs> where there was nothing before because now the two states, putatively or sort of states, are meeting there to see whatever. And then you find this border boom town with warehouses full of God knows what and secret paths and roads going through and coyotes to take you across and officials who will buy and sell anything. And it's, you know, it, there's a kind of a, I don't know, atmosphere 
And one of the most extreme, just for example, is the border between Uganda, Democratic Republic of Congo, and Sudan, which was in the middle of absolutely nowhere. But because of you know diamonds and minerals and the political uprisings and, uh, if you will, insurgent groups, and then the army coming in trying to control this as an area, uh, it's become a mafia, a mini-state, where there are powerful men, men usually, but occasionally women, who've got their tentacles into every institutional or non-form of authority, money, trade. Of course, the, the border guards and the army and the, not the, everybody's got a piece of it. And you go there and the place like the middle of what was absolutely nothing and it's humming, okay? The cash is flowing. The diamonds are gleaming. You know, the smiles are smiling. It's, it's going on, okay? So the, that attitude of the... So I kind of got into this, you know, border as post-Shakespearean fair kind of thing. And the idea that the border is a business. It's now become... So the people who are the borderlanders, two things. One is they relate more to each other than to people in the capital mm -hmm. city or... There's a different law at the border. There's the law you make in Pretoria or in Abidjan, and then there's the legal system, so-called, down at the border. Okay, And the people in the capital city know this, but they don't push too hard because they're getting a cut of it as well. The time then when you will see an inspector from Abidjan coming there is because the cut their cut hasn't worked its way back up to the regional and national offices like it's supposed to. Somebody didn't pay off. That's when you see the national. Now, all of the panel play and the flags and the marching up and down is a performance of statehood and of sovereignty. We're a country. And if you'd like to come into your country, you, our country, you'd have to pay. And uh, if you don't want to pay us, you don't want to pay somebody else, and you could end up this and that and the other, and uh, we're not asking for 100% of your money, but we're asking for a nice swat of it, and it's going to go up and down and down. And it's what I have called mixed inefficiency. It's they don't really like technology because it records too much stuff and it keeps an electronic trail of all kinds of transactions and who crossed the border. If I cross Maseru Bridge, I don't know how it is today when they, the EU has interfered in that border, since the World Cup they've interfered. But it used to be if 16,000 people cross Maseru Bridge every December. The border between Lesotho and South yes, Africa. Yes, every day in December, which is the holiday kind of time, 16,000 people. They have no idea if it's 16,000 different people or Professor Copeland has crossed 16,000 times in one day. And they're trying to spruce it up, but they don't want to spruce it up too much because that will reveal what's going on. So it should be efficient enough to frighten people into paying something to get around the regulations, but not so efficient that those transactions are all too obvious and evident so that it has to go by the book, which everybody hates. 
A smuggler, the definition of a smuggler, is someone who breaks the law of the state in order to obey those of economics. So, because economics is a very powerful landlord, you know. Now, that was all just dandy until Europe decided that African borders were a little too rubbery uh, because massive numbers of African immigrants were showing up on Mediterranean shores and then crossing the border between Europe and Africa, which is the Mediterranean. Okay, that's the border. And, oh, they tried all kinds of things, but one of the things that they have tried massively is to interfere in border management. To get the borders interiorly in Africa, way down in Zimbabwe or Lesotho or whatever, to stop people at source somehow and to make it worth their while to do that. Sort of pushing the borders of Europe deep into Africa. Yeah, that's right. The border of France is in Dakar and Bangui and the British border is in Nairobi and... Back to the future. Yes, put it back there. Um, but you, there is no way that the EU will stop people from getting some sort of document, some sort of transport, some sort of... because it's business. So it will carry on. On that note, I think we'll have to bring our conversation yes. to a close. We've covered so much. Thank you. But it's all show business. That's, that's the main thing. <laughs> Thank you, David Copeland, for speaking with Africa Past and Present. Thank you, Peter. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>